Salaam and peace. This is Imam Malik Mujahid and you are listening to our podcast Mujahid Talks. This is the audio version of our daily live show on Galaxy 19 satellite for Muslim Network TV. Uh, we are coming to you from Chicago where we are based. Uh, but I uh, wonder if... Uh, why in the world america the richest country in the world has a homeless problem to begin with and then we are unable to solve it and uh, homeless people even in chicago you know uh, they have homeless shelter opens up at night chicago today is like summer like about 40 degrees or so but for last 3 uh, weeks it was uh, freezing or below freezing so homeless shelter open at night in the day they have to be out out where where well there are a lot of buildings which city and the state owns uh, which are not much populated during the daytime why we are unable to have a systemic solution and when we want to provide you know whenever it's a cold weather and things like that uh, um, you know a shelter which is uh, uh, worthwhile so to discuss that with two people who have dedicated good part of their life one on the policy side and making the government policies better law better other one individually taking responsibility of uh, dealing with this phenomena so uh, first person i would like to invite is moria faskranas welcome to muslim network tv very nice to be here thank you moria is founder and executive director of national homeless law center moria is a primary architect of a landmark uh, law which is called Stuart B. McKinney uh, Homeless Assistance Act. It was the first major federal legislation addressing homelessness. Maria is joining us from Washington, D.C. And Keith McKinney, welcome to Muslim Network TV. Thank you so much. Keith McKinney does a whole lot of things. He does... is an artist an activist an author and a troublemaker that is good trouble i guess uh, he is a co-founder of food not bombs keith has uh, recovered cooked and shared food with the hungry with uh, the organization which he founded food not bombs for over 40 years he's joining us from santa cruz california thank you so before we go to homelessness tell me how homelessness are doing in the pandemic and freezing weathers you want to go first maria sure um so the pandemic has exacerbated what was already a terrible human rights crisis in our country the pandemic has just made it that much more challenging um obviously people who are homeless don't have a home to quarantine in to stay safe and so and not only that but they are also especially vulnerable to the coronavirus so there have been studies that show that people who are homeless um have more if they become infected with a coronavirus they are more likely to die from it or to require intensive hospitalization so this is a very bad situation more likely more exposed and more likely to die um we've been very active and my organization were advocates we advocate for government responses um primarily and um we were very active with getting the cdc the center for disease control um to issue guidelines that um reflect our recommendations that say if you're homeless if you're in a shelter the shelter has to provide many of these shelters are congregate so a lot of people in one space and provide um 
ways for people to sanitize, for people to socially distance from each other, for people who are on the street, who are unsheltered, um, don't conduct sweeps, don't force people to move away from wherever they're staying, um, and instead put them in individual um, hotel rooms. There's so many vacant hotel rooms. You talked about the vacant properties. Yes, there are a lot of vacant properties of all kinds, commercial properties. There's also a lot of vacant hotels. And a number of cities around the country, a number of communities have actually done this to some extent. Hmm. Go, go, go ahead, Keith. Yeah, so in our, what happened for us for the pandemic is uh, on March 14th last year, we got news that there were going to be, um, uh, all the indoor food programs are gonna be shut down. And at that time we had been doing just Saturday and Sunday because the those were the two days that the other soup kitchens were closed. And so we realized that suddenly everybody was gonna be without food and without fresh drinking water and with uh, and and uh and then and um and be in dire straits so we started sharing food uh seven days a week 20 you know every single day to make sure that people had their meals and we thought we'd be doing it for approximately 30 days and we'd be back to our uh weekend schedule but we've actually had to be out there the entire time and for the first probably 100 days or so in Santa Cruz, we were the fresh drinking water for people that lived outside unless they went in to buy it at CVS or Walmart or something. But otherwise there was no access, the bathrooms were closed, fresh water was cut off. And um, we were also the only reliable, and still are the only reliable hand washing station for people living outside. The thing that was kind of shocking was how many people that lived outside received uh, um, shelter in place tickets where their address would be transient or homeless. So uh, people getting, in some cases, a $1,000 ticket for living outside. And then we took the CDC um, rules that Maria was speaking about, and uh, we were trying to defend people from being kicked out, from being swept from one place to the other. And the sweeps of unhoused people continue even to this day. There's a huge controversy in Santa Cruz and across the whole country where massive sweeps are, are happening. And so that has also exacerbated the problem. And then our city government has also tried to suppress our ability to share food and has evicted us repeatedly from one location after another. And uh, without any consideration that people living outside have to then go find us again at the new location. And we have to reset up all of our uh, uh, program just to uh, address the fact that we've just got evicted. And we're currently facing that today, in fact, here in Santa Cruz, where um, the city is threatening to uh, uh, arrest us if we continue to share food in uh, the visible locations where we're at, where people can find us. So it's been a, it's been a huge uh, uh, disaster, basically. And our, we also, at the beginning, there was a, uh, a proposal by the governor of California uh, Newsom to have people placed in hotels. He announced a large amount of money, Operation Room Key. Our community in Santa Cruz has uh, is a tourist town with many, many vacant hotel rooms. And entire hotels that are vacant uh, have never even been lived in by anybody. And yet we cannot get the city to cooperate. So I eventually took money that I had made from the sale of a farm that I had owned in New Mexico. And I housed 180 people in hotel rooms for four different nights and uh, trying to embarrass the city to actually follow through with the state's program. But they, um, um, you know, they, they, they basically have not done so. And I believe uh, we have something in the area of about 200 people in hotels now and several thousand people wandering the streets of our community. Um, there are, uh, we have several tent cities, which were in litigation to, uh, uh, defend because of, uh, there was this holiday sweeps that they were going to do holiday evictions and so we had the community came out blocked the police from evicting the camp and then we filed a, uh, a temporary restraining order and now currently have an injunction against kicking people out into the parks because it would be a danger to people um, uh, to everyone you know to have like another several hundred people who potentially could have COVID wandering around town 
from doorway to doorway, from park to park, uh, is no way to handle a pandemic. Hmm. Well, not many. I mean, there, there, there seems to be no news how many people have died. I mean, uh, you know, I saw somewhere they were saying 200 homeless people. In Texas, they're saying it's going to take about three months to count how many people die because of the uh, freeze there. Uh, but the news is that at least 20 people who have died, six of them are uh, homeless people. Uh, probably a lot, many, because who's going to report if somebody is dead? And uh, and I don't think they will be uh, determining what was their uh, status of home. I mean, a whole lot of people have uh, difficulty during this. Uh, Keith, you you started talking about, you know, you're trying to, with your money, trying to, uh, shame the the city uh, to do better. What is this? You and city is always in fight. It seems that I mean you you have been to jail hundred times. Uh, spent uh, uh, five hundred nights or so in jail. Uh, why distributing food is illegal? Well, the the it really isn't illegal, and it's a it's really an unregulated act of compassion, and it should not no the governments really should have no business in and stopping us when they can't themselves actually, or they they choose not to provide the food that could have been uh, um, provided. And it seems to us, one of the issues is that they, in every single uh, case where we've been arrested, the goal of the city was to hide the crisis of homelessness in their community. And uh, for example, in the first wave of arrests in 1988 in San Francisco, um, the city at one point being embarrassed said, okay, well, you could go out to the ocean to a military base and feed people out there, but we can't have you down in, in the city um, feeding people. And from our perspective, we're trying to change the conditions, though, that no one is homeless and no one has to eat at a soup kitchen. So um, just to kind of ghettoize the unhoused to the margins of society already, and then to lure them to the edges of town with free food is completely inhumane. And so this is why we've stood our ground. And, uh, and as you point out, I did uh, at least 500, I settled a three strikes case where I was facing 25 to life for my participation in Food Not Bombs. And I, uh, um, the, I got credit for 500 days time served and a felony conviction as a, as a result. But um, you know, this is just, it's, it's I think in part, it's a s American society who is embarrassed that we have this huge crisis. They don't want to spend money handling it. Local municipalities are concerned that the uh, real estate interest will uh, uh, be adversely affected. People won't want to build or buy luxury condominiums in your community if it is surrounded with like, literally thousands of unhoused people. So let me just add to that. Um, in addition, it is actually illegal in many parts of the country to offer food, to share food with people. Um, and this is part of a trend, which is um, a trend that we call the criminalization of homelessness and a bigger trend of criminalizing poverty in this country. Um, so in many cities, um, virtually all cities across the country, and also in some rural areas, it's illegal to do basic things like sleep in a public place, even if you have no other place to go. Um, it's illegal to sit down and to lie down to eat. Um, it, it's basically, it's illegal to exist in a public place, even if you have no private place of your own. These are laws that are in place across the country. And these are laws that we and other advocates have been going to court to fight for years. And um, we have been successful in a number of cases. And there was a similar case to what Keith is describing involving a local food not bombs organization in Florida, where um, there was a successful challenge and the court said, no, you can't make it a crime. It's not just because it's not just um, sharing food with people, it's also conveying a message, a message that um, that we care and we are providing, we're sharing our resources with people who need them and who don't have them. So there is some 
progress. Um, a big uh, case that my organization recently brought and won involved a challenge to an anti-camping law. Anti-camping is another way of saying anti-sleeping. So a law that says you can't, you know, quote, camp in a public place aimed at people who are simply sleeping in public. If the court, you know, we, we litigated this for a long time, but the final ruling in the Ninth Circuit, which covers nine states, mainly on the West Coast, is that you cannot criminally punish someone for sleeping outside if they have no indoor alternative. So that's very important. It's um, It sets some parameters, protects some very basic rights. It's not what we really you know, we're not fighting for the right to sleep in public, we're fighting for the right to housing. But it says you, at the very minimum, you can't punish people simply for not having that housing. And it gives us some leverage to say, let's work together to make sure that people do have housing. Really, it's in everybody's interest to do that. No one wants to see people living on the street. Yeah, the solution to homelessness is a house. And we there's actually now a new set of challenges to the fine law that uh, Maria's organization um, struggled so hard to get, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals Martin v. Boise case. Um, now they are changing the language. And in our city here in Santa Cruz, they have created a whole new fiction uh, to get around Martin v. Boise, around that ruling. And uh, right now they're proposing that people could camp theoretically from the hours of an hour after sundown till eight o'clock in the morning, but they've then created restricted areas, which ex it turns out essentially restricts a person from sleeping anywhere, pitching a tent anywhere within the city of Santa Cruz, even though technically speaking, if there were a physical piece of land to be on, you could set up a tent, uh, uh, hour after sunset and have to take it down at eight in the morning. And uh, this is the kind of struggle that we are now about to litigate against as well uh, in association with our already our injunction that we are defending against the eviction of a, a homeless camp at San Lorenzo Park. I mean, what policies have led or what policies have resulted in Washington, D.C. becoming the, you know, You're essentially to capital of the homeless people? Talk. We'll be right um, back I don't know that Washington, D.C. is the capital. I, the, we'll this is a nationwide problem. And we work nationally across the country. This is an issue that is decades in the making, and it really started in um, the early 1980s when there were huge cuts to federal funding for low-income housing program. So this country decades ago made a commitment to ensure that people who are poor can afford housing. And it used to fund, um, to provide federal funding to do that. In the Reagan era, there were big cuts to these programs and they never recovered. Right now, only one in four out of people who are poor enough so that they're eligible for federal help, federal housing help, actually receives that help, one in four. And the reason for that is that funding has been cut so dramatically. So what happens to the people, the three out of four who don't get that help? They are on waiting lists. Sometimes the waiting lists are years long and they're, you know, while they're waiting, what happens? Um, people eventually become homeless, at least some number of them become homeless. So that's, these are the, their basic structural reasons for this. At the same time, we see in the private housing market, a lot of units that used to be available that were inexpensive have been, um, demolished or have been turned into luxury properties. That's what we call gentrification. And um, so housing costs 
are skyrocketing. The ability of people to afford those costs are going down. It also it has to do also with falling wages. Wages have not kept up. So you can be someone who works full time, maybe two or three jobs more than full time, and yet you still can't afford for to pay for housing. So these are the reasons. And you know the people who become homeless are kind of the tip of the iceberg of a much deeper problem. Um, which is the affordable housing crisis. Okay, so so uh, tell me this, Kate. Uh, do Americans really understand homelessness? Is it really something which we talk about it, uh, you know, on, around Thanksgiving and Christmas season, uh, or is it part of uh, you know a higher level of uh, attention? I mean, what is your take? I mean, you have been. Uh, dealing with it for almost uh, all of your life. Or do America understand homelessness? Well, I think that Americans did not understand homelessness until the pandemic. And I think that's the silver lining of the pandemic. Um, the fact that the, we have an estimated um, uh, 40 million Americans facing eviction right now because of this has made us a close up and personal um, crisis for many, many people. And I think many people in the United States, also their family members who they thought would never become homeless are now living in the streets or living on their couches and so on as a direct result of the economic calamity. And I think it's going to get far more severe. Food Not Bombs itself across the world is preparing to deal with uh, an ever larger number of unhoused people, and particularly here in the United States. It's a uh, it's visibly shake. It's visible to see the amount of people that are recently evicted who now live in in, in their vehicles, and then to have cities uh, um, start seizing people's vehicles because they live in them. That's one of our major crises we have here in California, and so I do think that there is some kind of new understanding. But traditionally, up until the uh, year ago, people assumed that everyone that lived outside was out there many, many people had did, they were unfamiliar with the crisis, that they were just like either lazy, there's been so much propaganda that people are, there may be drug addicts or alcoholics. But the in my experience, there's families of people that are, um, you know, that are, are clean and sober. They're people that basically could not afford housing. And that is the thing that is being unmasked right now, is that this is really a crisis of housing. And when we started out, um, one of the earliest things I was a produce worker, and I was, uh, and I would take the uh, food that I could uh, off the shelves that couldn't be sold, and I take it to these housing projects as Maria was talking about, and uh, and we got to talking, and across the street there was this brand new building. This is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it turned out they were building a uh, laboratory to design nuclear weapons, and this is where the name Food Not Bombs came from, and then on, on March twenty sixth of nineteen. 81, we decided to do street theater to in front of the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston, outside the stockholders meeting in the Bank of Boston. This is about 30 days after Reagan had come to had uh, been sworn in as president. And we're saying if the policies of these banks and the policies of the Reagan administration continue, there will be unhoused people living outside needing to get food at soup kitchens. And there was actually, we had to go round up some people at the Pine Street Inn, which was a shelter that had uh, survived from the Great Depression in, in Boston on Pine Street. And I gave a little speech there in the middle of the night and those guys showed up and they were like, not only grateful to participate in the protest, um, but they also suggested we do it every day because at that time in uh, March 26th of 81, there was no daily food program in Boston for people who lived outside. Maria, you know, tell me, coming back to the policy aspect of it, um, you know, the report which uh, about the youth homelessness, which was issued by your organization uh, just uh, three days ago or four days ago, um, I went through that and the, was looking at the top cities of the highest homelessness. Uh, or top states. And what I found was, except one, except Louisiana, all the top 10 states with the highest level of homelessness 
are actually uh, you know are run by liberals and democrats uh, and i was shocked uh, because they are the one who talk about uh, you know fighting homelessness and uh, uh, fighting uh, <clears throat> hunger and uh, you know so so what is this so you understand that just a point of clarification our report did not evaluate states with the highest number of youth, the highest numbers of homeless youth. It looked at responses, policy responses to homeless youth. So the top states you were looking at are the ones that had the best, um, the strongest responses to the problem of youth homelessness, which might make a little more sense in terms of, you know, who was who was in charge of running the states. Okay, so you are saying that I'm uh, sort of read wrongly. The number one are not the one with the highest level of homelessness, yes. but they are the best in policy. Yes. But, um, but here's my problem. The reason I interpret it that way, when I look up at the statistics of homelessness, uh, again, uh, the largest number of homelessness came up in Washington, D.C., uh, Hawaii, California, New York, which are, again, the uh, liberal-run uh, states. Okay. So a couple of things. Um, first, numbers are very treacherous in the world of homelessness. We don't have good data. No, The counts that um, are carried out each year by the federal government are highly inaccurate. So we don't get a lot of information from those numbers. But the bigger point that you're raising is, you know, this is not just because a, a city or a state is progressive on a number of issues doesn't mean that they're progressive on um, in addressing homelessness. Um, it's not, this is not necessarily an issue that is, you know, a partisan issue. Um, I think that, that broadly speaking, policies that are being promoted by progressive politicians are better for people who are homeless because in general, those policies call for additional affordable housing, for raising the minimum wage, for access to health care. Those are all the things that we need in order to really address homelessness. So, you know, but what you're, but, you know, as I said, this is a problem that is a big problem, a structural problem. It's a problem that exists across the country. I don't think it's right to say that, oh, you know, you have high numbers of homeless people in California, you have a democratic governor and that's, there's a cause and effect. No, that is not the case. California has very, very high housing costs and that is the driver and that's often due, that's partly due to all the tech companies that are driving up the cost of housing. Um, so you really can't say, make a correlation. Um, but in California is not alone. I mean, housing costs are high in many parts of the country. That is the key driver. That's what's driving the increase in homelessness. Okay. So I think it's wrong to, to make that kind of connection. Okay. Let me ask another question. I mean, you raised, Maria, the question, you know, the statistics are hardly unreliable in this area. Um, I mean, they heard the last statistics they have was uh, 568,000 uh, people are, uh, you know, homeless uh, on any given night. Uh, but recently, you know, just I think today's news, uh, the Central Hollywood Neighborhood Council have decided to count uh, a volunteer count of homeless in the Hollywood, uh, uh, probably because of the similar skepticism. So, 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 you know, Keith, what what is your feel from the ground? How wrong are these statistics? Well, I think they're very, very wrong. So, for example. If you had Google, 750,000 homeless Americans, uh, be, uh, you would find that the number was uh, was 750,000 starting in about nine, 1990. And suddenly, for some reason, and probably because the point in time count, which is one of the ways that, the, that uh, um, people are counted who live outside, that's the program that started, 
um, I think even predates the housing foreclosure crisis. But it's un, it's odd that that there would be a half million unhoused people any given night after the housing foreclosure crisis in 2007 and 2008, when before the housing foreclosure crisis, there was an additional 250,000 unhoused people. So it just shows how, uh, how these numbers are, are inaccurate. I do the point in time count here in Santa Cruz, in the, uh, which is a way that we get our federal funding to help the unhoused people. I go out and help count. It's usually the worst day I think the theory of it was that most people would be in a shelter. It would make it easier to count the unhoused. But if you cannot fit in a shelter, which is the case for most people, or do not want to go to a shelter, because there's many reasons. When I've been homeless, one of the last things I ever thought of doing was going to a shelter. No way I would do that. I don't want to be funneled into a system, be crowded in uh, with a bunch of people. I want my autonomy. I think that's where the basic problem with this entire crisis is right now, is that governments try to uh, consider the unhoused people as people that are not worthy of accommodation, that they're essentially like rodents or, or something of this nature. This is the language that city governments use when dealing with the so-called homeless problem. That's why sweeping homeless camps, is the term sweeping is used because it considered that those people are nothing more than garbage. And so we've really got to get around the fact that, for instance, many of my friends that I share food with here in Santa Cruz built this city of Santa Cruz. They were construction workers, became injured building the buildings that are standing in our community. And after their injuries, eventually their disability checks ran out. They could not afford to live somewhere. And they can point to the building that they were injured at and they have to live in a car or a tent outside that very same building. And this is common throughout the United States. Many, many people that live outside were injured at work. So Keith, this is one way people become homeless. You mentioned they become injured, healthcare was not available. Uh, so they have to spend their whatever they got. And now there is no place to uh, pay, no money left to pay the rent, and they're out on the streets. What other ways, Maria, people become homeless? Well, you, often the, what happens is you lose a job and you can't pay the rent. Um, you, you get evicted. And the first thing you do is you um, find a friend or a relative and you stay with them for a few nights. Maybe you sleep on someone's couch. Maybe you sleep on someone's kitchen floor. Eventually, that doesn't work because typically um, people's friends and family are also struggling. Um, and so that might be a temporary Band-Aid solution. But eventually, you might go to a shelter. Maybe the shelter has space. Maybe it doesn't. Often these shelters have time limits. You can't, you know, you have to leave in the morning. You don't keep your bed. You, have, you can't be there during the day. Maybe you can only stay for seven days or for 14 days. Maybe the shelter is dangerous. So you might end up on the street. So that's a typical trajectory. Eviction is often the precipitating cause. Is mental health, uh, uh, Keith, uh, part of the issue here? Well, if you can imagine, as what Maria just described, you're sliding into homelessness. Even the most stable person is going to have some mental health issues as they become homeless. I don't think any of us would deny that the stress of, of trying to cling on to your housing and then to lose your housing is a huge emotional and mental crisis. At the same time, there are many people who uh, uh, who do um, need adequate support and medic medication and so on because of, uh, and have become homeless as a result of, of mental health issues. But I think that it's the economy and the, and the uh, political system that is actually more at fault than the idea that somebody is unhoused. Um, you know, becoming, you know, because, because just because they're mentally ill. And I think that that is one of the ways we dehumanize the people living outside to just say, oh, they're just drug addicts. They're just mentally ill. They deserve it. They're lazy and shiftless. But that is not to be homeless full time is, is a is a full time job. 
And it's impossible to often get off the street. So I had a, well, um, in the area of shelters, for example, when I was in uh, Orlando, Florida and getting arrested, it turned out the shelters there cost um, $15 a night, the first three nights free. And then I was in jail with people who were panhandling money to get their $15 so they could get in the city shelter. I mean, that is outrageous. The other problem down in Orlando, which people run into, is is that uh, you had to have a valid Florida ID to get any services. You couldn't even eat at a soup kitchen. And one of the objections to our sharing food in Orlando was the fact that we did not ID people, and therefore people without valid Florida IDs were able to survive. And this was a problem for the local government. So... Mm -hmm. um, so I think mental health, I would be, I just, I can't imagine, uh, I'm amazed how mentally healthy people living outside are and how amazing they are at being able to navigate what is a horrible situation where you're being moved from doorway to doorway, you have no stable place, you have to carry all your belongings with you. And it's uh, very, very hard to get a job under those conditions, even if jobs are available. And the few pe the people that we have helped in, in Food Not Bombs get employment all got employment because we stashed all their belongings at our place so they could go around not looking uh, like they're arriving at a job interview with a backpack and a sleeping bag, which is a, a automatically 10 points against you. And yeah. who wants to hire a person in that condition? Keith uh, and Maria, you know, I like to focus a little bit uh, on the solution side of things. Uh, I mean, it, it pains probably you much more than I because you have dedicated your life to fight this. So thank you so much. But in terms of solutions, uh, you know, I saw a report a uh, couple of weeks ago uh, that in Vancouver, some organization decided to just give out 6,000 or I forgot, maybe six or $7,000 to every homeless person. They selected a number of people. I don't know how many. And uh, I was calculating this morning as preparing for this show, just the federal government itself uh, gives almost, uh, you know, uh, $3 billion to fight homelessness. Uh, if the government data about 568,000 homeless is correct, that comes out to $6,000 itself. And counting what states and cities spend, suppose a wild guest, they spend equal amount, 3 billion there and 3 billion more. So this comes out to $10,000, $12,000 per homeless person. Uh, do you do you think instead of all the bureaucracy and system and processes, if these people are given direct a good aid like that, a good number of them probably will be able to uh, handle their affairs? Because you just mentioned Keith, and it uh, hurt me very deeply when you say being a homeless is a full-time job. And my man, mind went... Uh, from that side, when you mentioned that, where you know where they're putting their stuff, as you mentioned, or where they're going to use a facility, will they have any shower? If they have some belongings, so how it will be safe? How they're going to fight the guy? How will they disappear when the guy is coming to give them a thousand dollar ticket just by being homeless? I mean, hiding itself seems to be a major part of that daily job. So, so what? Do, do you think that experiment in Vancouver is worth some uh, other people repeating that? Well, and, and um, you know, when the stimulus checks came out under Trump, many of my friends went, the first thing they did was they spent the entire amount on a used van to sleep in. Hmm. So just that alone. So all of a sudden, all, I had a ton of friends with used vans living in them because that's what their strategy was. Um, so, I, so I think that, you know, in, in that, you know the, that is definitely a, a solution. But the real solution, um, I have a friend, Paul Bowden, who uh, is a, a homeless advocate and, and organizes with um, uh, the homeless out here in the West Coast. And he says it really clearly, the solution to homelessness as a home. And we have reports here in the Bay Area where there is at least two empty 
hotel rooms or apartment units for every unhoused person in the community. And so we can look back to 1980 when we started as Food Not Bombs, very few homeless people. Maybe public housing was not the greatest thing, but the people were not living outside. Once that uh, whole program started to fall apart and get defunded, and the uh, federal government didn't re uh, renew leases on, on those properties and so on, we started to see an increasing number of homeless people. So the real solution, and, and our name says it, food, not bombs. If we built one less aircraft carrier, you could put it in. I mean, bomb is a big industry. So you want some money from those companies? Why, why you are attacking bombs here? <laughs> so we're, we're thinking that maybe we build one less aircraft carrier task force and we put that money into education, healthcare, and, and other social services uh, into public housing, then this crisis would, would uh, start to evaporate. But that is exactly the point that we've been making for 40 years. And it's also exactly the reason, according to the federal government, that we were originally declared America's one of America's most hardcore terrorist groups in 1988, and that in uh, 2009, the State Department was having lectures comparing us to Al-Qaeda, who was more dangerous, the vegan meals in the parks or Al-Qaeda, and they determined it was food not bombs because we were trying to convince the American public that their resources, their tax dollars, be diverted to things like education, health care, other social services, housing, and that therefore there would be a reduction in military spending that would endanger the United States. And so that's why we, one reason we have been, and I personally have been, a target of a very intense campaign. Um, and a number of our people have been framed by the federal government, by the FBI, as terrorists and have spent quite a number of years in prison as a direct result of this challenge to the idea that some of our military spending could be put into social services. Moriad, you know, you have chosen a different path than Keith has chosen. And uh, you have testified so many times to Congress about this particular issue. I did not testify, but uh, I think there is a uh, poverty caucus at the Congress. So they invited me and uh, as an imam, and there was a rabbi, and, and there was a, um, a Christian preacher. And uh, there were about 300 uh, people, staffers and uh, things like that. And only, uh, I would say, 30 or so were the Congress persons themselves. I don't remember a single white Congress person who was sitting there. Staffers, there were many, but mostly they were blacks who were sitting there. Do you think uh, Congress considered this to be a black issue and uh, bundles it among the other issues of this nature? Or, you know, are, are they listening to you? I mean, you have done so many hearings with them. The people who are coming to hearing, are, are, are they similar type? Are they some people who are skeptic of the whole issue, are coming to understand your issues, or it's just same people, uh, you know, talking to each other, going nowhere? Because so, you know, I, I saw your website says that uh, increased $300 million funding to make it $3.1 billion. Why Why you can't demand, okay, make this year the end of this nonsense that the richest country in the world cannot take care of people uh, who in the extreme weathers have to sleep outside without any facilities and all that. Make it 50 billion this year and this year will be the last year when anybody will have to be out. I agree. We're not we're not the ones advocating for these small increases. There are some organizations that do. We are advocating for the human right to housing. We believe that housing is a right. It is a right that it, it is a basic human need. It's something everybody needs, like food, for example. Housing is a right, and that's what we want. That's what we demand. And why that's important is because if you agree that housing is a right, then that means that you fund it 
to so that it, the funding is adequate. Um, and if it costs $50 billion, that's what it is. Um, so that is our demand. And, you know, I, um, I have been working on this for a very long time. And when I first started out in the mid 1980s, Congress didn't treat this as a serious issue. Congress wanted nothing to do with the issue of homelessness. The McKinney-Vento Act, which you started out uh, mentioning, Imam, was the first time Congress treated this as a federal problem, as a federal issue. And it responded. It didn't respond enough. It was a, a small but very significant step. Obviously, a lot more has to be done, and we are advocating for that, and it's taking a very long time. But right now, there is um, legislation pending um, in Congress called Housing is a Human Right Act, which um, Congresswoman Jayapal is promoting, and we are supporting. Um, we've been very um, deeply involved in that. And we're also working with advocates at the state and local level for the right to housing. Um, just recently, the state of Connecticut introduced legislation um, for the right to housing. In California last year, we worked with local advocates there to get the state of California to amend its constitution to recognize housing as a right. This didn't happen last year, but there's going to be a renewed effort in the coming year. So I think, and, and we're also very, um, you know, I, glad that right now the right to housing is being discussed in the political in uh, at the political level in a way it never has been before president biden's platform on housing says that housing is a right should be treated as a right um, this has not happened before this is a long fight and it's by no means over but i do i agree with keith that the pandemic has been important. It has really um, made clear to people how important housing is, how critical it is, and how everybody really can be um, vulnerable to homelessness because, you know, the economic crisis has put people, so many people in such a precarious situation. So I do think that, um, there's hope. I mean, clearly there's a lot that has to be done. I don't, we do not, I, I want to make clear that we are not calling for a tiny increase. We are calling for housing to be really um, uh, funded as a right. Hmm. So, Let me share something uh, with you, and I hope uh, you both will be able to address that. You know, I see so many good people in our society who want to help. And, and that help goes directly into helping people, or feeding people, this and that. And maybe they do all the year around, but media highlights it only when the good news period of uh, holiday season. Uh, but what is the impact of these good people in overall society's perception of understanding and attending to these issues. I, you know, although I have spent most of my adult life in Chicago, I'm in, uh, in USA, but I was born and went to school uh, in a poor country, Pakistan, very poor country. I mean, their per capita is not even $1,000 to as compared to our uh, 35 or 1,000 or something like that. And there are a lot of poor people, a lot of poor people. But homelessness is not as pronounced. I mean, people take care of relatives. They will be standing home, small home. A lot of people will provide them a space. Even somebody comes to urban areas in Karachi, for example, where I went to school, you will not be finding on sidewalk people sleeping and all that. And people will take care of each other. The whole value system, while the government there is not efficient, government there does not have even, uh, you know, $1 million for poor people in their budget. I mean, those things is not governmental. But values of the society itself uh, are stronger. So are we relying too much on laws and all the good people in the mosque and the churches and synagogues? 
are sort of uh, doing their part little bit to take care of people, whatever they can, whatever I can type of situation in, in a state of exerting greater influence on the value system of our people, along with supporting the proper laws which are needed. Sorry, longer question. I have 30 seconds for each one of you. Yeah, well, I, I agree there. The, you know, I've traveled the world and people do take care of one another in other countries. And I think the biggest thing here is that is, uh, is, uh, we have laws against being unhoused. So you can't really set up like a, an area on the edge of town where you're living in, in shanties and so on, but you're all taking care of each other. We, that just can't happen here. It's about the economy here and this kind of demonization and dehumanization of unhoused people that is at the core of, of what the problem is, I think. Maria, last word. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think values are important insofar as they drive also policy. And right now our policies reflect this sort of, you know, demonization of poor people that Keith mentioned, but also this ideology that you're on your own, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and we need to have an approach where we're all in this together and our laws and our policies need to reflect that, need to acknowledge the humanity of everyone and that everyone has these basic needs and those needs need to be collectively addressed and we don't have that right now. Well, thank you so much, uh, Maria, and thank you so much, Keith. It, uh, thank you, you're sort of teacher for me, helping me understand the issues better. And thank you so much, Shertil and Dr. Abdul Wahid for producing and inviting our guest uh, today. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. You can always watch our live show on Muslim Network TV, which is 24-7 on Galaxy 19 satellite, which has 57 million subscribers. Our OTT devices like Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, Raku. And of course, you can download our app on Android or iPhone or watch it on YouTube or Facebook. Just type Muslim Network TV. And to learn more about us and past shows, come to our website, muslimnetwork.tv. Peace. Salam.